The Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the Pulte Institute for Global Development, an integral part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Pulte Institute works to address global poverty and inequality through policy, practice, and partnership, and is a catalyst for centers and faculty at Notre Dame to develop interdisciplinary research programs that address today's most pressing global development challenges. Learn more at pulte.nd.edu. Hello, and welcome to the Global Pathways podcast. I'm your host, Ray Offenheiser. Human stress and its impacts on our lives and health is something we seldom stop to assess. It's not an easy topic to wrap one's mind around because it really requires deep knowledge of human physiology, psychology, sociology, and even economics. Few scholars dare to try to cross disciplinary boundaries to address such a challenging question. Surrounded by a raging pandemic, racial tension, and political polarization, perhaps it's time we step back and ask some fundamental questions about how we're experiencing life in our 21st century U.S. consumer-driven capitalist society. A cursory review of the evidence would suggest perhaps not so well. Two economic crises over the last decade have wiped out the assets of many families. Extreme inequality has eroded belief in the American dream. Automation has displaced many workers from traditionally well-paying manufacturing jobs. Our for-profit healthcare system is systematically bankrupting many families. And the dominant neoliberal economic model has shredded what little in the way of safety nets are today available to American families. And as Anne Case and Angus Deaton illustrate in their book, Deaths of Despair, we are creating a world in the U.S. where many can no longer find a good reason to live. Our guest today is someone who has devoted his life to social activism and science and is devoting the latter part of his career to championing a radically new vision of what is health. Dr. Peter Sterling is a distinguished professor of neuroscience from the University of Pennsylvania, whose book, Principles of Neuroscience, is one of the definitive texts in the field. His research is focused heavily on the microneural pathways from the retina to the brain. However, Dr. Sterling has also been an activist throughout his career. As a 21-year-old Cornell student, he left his studies to head to Mississippi in the summer of 1961 as a freedom rider where he was arrested and jailed. That experience shaped his life, and over the subsequent decades, he has sought ways his work in science might shed light on the impacts of racism on the African-American community in the United States. His recently published book, What is Health? Allostasis and the Evolution of Human Design, is the culmination of years of reading and research and his effort to answer exactly this question, what is health? Our conversation today will focus on his life and work and the major arguments of his latest book. Peter, we're delighted to have you with us today. Ray, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. We go so far back together, way back into the middle 1970s, and uh, you've been an inspiration to me as well for more than you can know. Thank you so much, Peter. Very kind. So, Peter, to get us started, I want to spend a good deal of time today on the more specific questions you address in your book that try to explore the impacts of race and inequality on minority communities. But maybe just to get us going, I'd like to begin by exploring your early years and how that shaped your commitment to activism and, and your decision to apply your scientific skills toward racial justice. Your childhood was somewhat unique here in the United States in that both your parents were members of the Communist Party. Now, while today, for us, that maybe sounds almost incredible, we don't realize that perhaps there was a large and vibrant membership in both the socialist and communist political parties in the early 20th century, and they field and elected candidates to political office in the nation. They ran candidates for president. A mayor in Milwaukee actually transformed that city and was reelected numerous times. And members of the Communist Party played a very important role 
in supporting Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement here in the United States. So maybe just to get us going, perhaps you could share a bit about what values your parents transmitted to you that shaped your future life and work. It seems incredible today, but even in 1950, it was incredible because by 1950, we moved out of New York City in 1948 after World War II to a small town north of New York City. It was a white Protestant Republican town with a handful of African-Americans. There was a larger working class town nearby where, where most of the African-Americans lived in a slum area that burned down every winter. And uh, it was a period in which there was segregation all through the South. And even, even in Philadelphia, where you and I spent a lot of time, there was segregation. Black people couldn't walk into a restaurant, couldn't get served, couldn't stay in motels. Until 1948, even the armed forces were completely segregated. So it was a, it was a different world. It was very extremely oppressive. So my parents were, they were writers and they met on the Federal Writers Project. It was part of the New Deal. As members of the Communist Party, they worked against lynching, which was a big deal. Uh, when I was 14, Emmett Till was lynched in Mississippi. It's a huge outcry about this. My parents were both members of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, as it was called then. Actually, the NAACP was founded partly by W.E.B. Du Bois, who's now a hero. But in the 1950s, he was a member of the Communist Party, and he had his passport confiscated, and he was confined to the U.S. So it was a period of where the, the left, the communists, driven by the Communist Party, was trying to do basic stuff that we, we now understand is important, but they were also being arrested and harassed. And my family had, was visited by the FBI, our phone was tapped, our mail was opened, our foreign mail was opened, and my parents were constantly intimidated. And I had friends whose parents lost their jobs, were put in jail, and so on. So it was an inspiring upbringing. Actually, I was thinking about it this morning. I wrote to a friend of mine in Massachusetts who's a rabbi, a young man, my son's age. Rabbi Hillel, famous rabbi, was asked to summarize the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, while standing on one leg. And what he said, he didn't hesitate. He just said, that which is hateful to you, do not unto others. So it's the golden rule, basically. I was realizing that Marx, Karl Marx, in the Communist Manifesto, written when he was, before he was 30, had a different standard. And I think it's a higher one. He said, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. This was the standard that we were raised to, and I still believe it. Those who were gifted in various ways should give as much as they can. And to the people who have less material, but also less, less ability, they, they need help. This is the human story. And I, so in a way, it's ironic, I think, that Karl Marx's phrase raises the level of the moral conscience above the Judeo-Christian tradition. So looking at Marx today, I mean, after all that we've been through and sort of all the history that we've seen in your life and mine, what did Marx get right and what did he get wrong? I mean, as you reflect on, on sort of that, that history today and sort of think about your, you know, what your parents were committed to and how that history has evolved. 
I read Marx in high school when I was in college. I read all through Das Kapital. I mean, English, of course. It was a brilliant story that he told. And I think he understood the, you know, the outlines of human evolution from what he called primitive communism, where people were hunting and gathering and living in simple ways. If you don't have a supermarket and you live by going out every morning to find your dinner, you share because, and this is well known by anthropologists now, you share because there's more fluctuation in what's available. So if you if you kill a pig, you can't eat it all, so you share it with your neighbors. If you find a big, I found this traveling in, in the Darien in Panama, where I live now. If a guy, a couple guys go out and they find prawns in the river, they don't have refrigeration, so they share them in the community. And then at other times, they will be the receivers. Our brains evolved to reward us for giving as well as receiving. The, the phrase, it is better to give than to receive, has a basis in our, in our actual neurophysiology. So back to Marx, you know, he had this vision of how we could live and how people needed to live that needed to have activities that were not just part of a machine, that we weren't just doing the same motion, repetitive motion all day, the same nothing. And actually, Adam Smith preceded, the father of modern economics preceded Marx. And in 1769, when the, the steam engine was first introduced by, by James Watt, who was a friend of Adam Smith, Adam Smith said, you know, when you make people do the same repetitive motion over and over and over again, the same job, they lose the ability to think and they become stupid. And he understood that this was going to be a problem for, for capitalism. And it has been. And the reason it's a problem is people don't become stupid. We have these huge brains that are capable of all of this imagination. And when you take away from people from the opportunity to, to use their imagination in art and music and telling stories and, and doing challenging activities, they go a little bit crazy. This is part of the problem now with, with deaths of despair. People don't want to live because they haven't anything substantial to live for. So this was something that Marx saw very clearly. He wrote his philosophic and economic manuscripts in 1844. When he was 25, he said, this, this is a problem. This is what he called alienation. We, we have given up our birthright of imagination and constructive co cooperative activity to be slaves and machine. And, and he knew this. this was a deadly development. So it seems like what you've taken away is that he was kind of arguing for more of a caring and cooperative economy um, at the end of the day. And that, yes. that was kind of at and the he, heart of what he was about. And then in some ways, where it went from there politically was a whole other project. Right. So so I'll comment on that. One of the lines that has driven my a lot of my life is that I read is he said, you know, when we have finally communism returns and we have this classless society, he said, we will hunt in the morning and we will fish in the afternoon and we'll write criticism in the evening. And it was a, a picture of a, of a diverse sort of life. And I've tried to uh, live that myself. And I, this is what brought me partly to Panama where I live on a farm and I do some farming and I, and I actually do continue to write. So what he didn't quite get right is that when I have an operation to remove my cataracts and put in some plastic lenses, 
I want to do it from a guy who actually does it all day long <laughs> or, a, or a woman who does it all day long. There's certain activities that require so much skill that you can't afford to be doing that as a semi-pro, you know? So what I think Marx, Marx got deeply wrong, and it took me quite a while to reach this, he believed there were laws of history. There would be a natural progression from through capitalism. Capitalism would die away and be replaced by some sort of fantasy uh, communist existence. And the problem is that Marx didn't read Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin really understood that Homo sapiens, we were named as a species by Linnaeus, you know, when he started naming all the animals and plants. Homo sapiens, we are animal. We are a type of animal. And we evolved from earlier primates, hominids, and who knows where we're going. But animals do not obey laws of history. They obey laws of biology and, and evolution. And Marx actually, he refused, as far as I can tell, to read Darwin's Origin of Species. Frederick Engels, his, his collaborator, sent him a copy. And he looked at it, and as soon as he, he realized that it was based partly on this economist, Scarcity, whose name I'm forgetting for the moment, he wasn't interested. He didn't benefit from understanding that, that our biology, human biology, is significantly determines how we live and, and, and what happens to us. So I think he got that wrong. The other thing is I, I read, reread the other day the Communist Manifesto, which is a brilliant, I mean, chilling, exciting piece of literature published in 1841, he was 30. And in the same breath that he says, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, he also says he has a list of things. Well, you know, there will be, we will abolish private property. We will do this, we will do that. And we'll put all this stuff in the hands of the state. I don't believe that. That will never do. That's a frightening idea. And I think it was, uh, you know, very naive. It's dead wrong. We can't, we can't trust our lives to some overarching state. So that's it. So Peter, maybe jumping forward from there, let's go now to kind of your scientific career. So how did we get from Marx to neuroscience? And what was that transition for you? Well, this town we moved to north of New York City is a town called Rye, New York. In that period, there was still woods and fields. There was even an occasional cow. There were birds and snakes. And I, had a, I was interested in nature and my mother encouraged that. I had a little museum in my in my bedroom and with live animals and stuffed animals and stuff. And I used to go to New York City to the Museum of Natural History. And so when I went to Cornell, I decided to study biology, zoology. And uh, that was a very exciting period in, 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 in biology, lots of new discoveries and new science. So I began doing that, but at the same time, I was I was involved in in political activities. And for example, in the this is a period when the U.S. was still testing atom bombs in the atmosphere. It's hard to believe, and the Russians do. I was part of the student movement for a sane nuclear policy to stop that. And then this was a period when the when the uh, sit-ins, the black students in in North Carolina, started sitting in at lunch counters for the right to have a cup of coffee. We and my friends at Cornell uh, organized a picket line in, in, uh, of the, uh, the store in Ithaca that was 
it was called Woolworths then. I don't know if it still exists, but it was a five and five and dime store. And so we we began supporting the uh, the black civil rights student civil rights movement. And then the next year was the the Freedom Rides, 1961. I joined those as well. So it was a moving back and forth. And then I continued when I went to graduate school in, in Cleveland at Western Reserve University. I continued working in the organization called Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, who had organized the Freedom Rides. And I was working in the community, the ghetto in, in Cleveland, which was, I mean, Blacks, people in Cleveland at that time and still are confined to the central region of the city. They can't find housing outside. So I would slip away from my microscope in my lab and go canvassing in this community. And I noticed that people who would come to the door when I knocked were uh, often crippled. They were limping. Their face would be sagging. Their speech would be slurred. When I went back to lab, I, I discussed with my my neurology uh, mentor, what this was, he said, well, these are people who had strokes and strokes are basically caused by hypertension, high blood pressure. So I realized, you know, my grandfather had lived in this very same ghetto when it was a Jewish ghetto, you know, 50 years before. He'd been a house painter. He also had had hypertension and an early stroke. And I realized, well, maybe hypertension is related to social tension. So there became, that was sort of the beginning of an interplay between my science understanding of the brain and my social commitment. So here at Notre Dame, we've been devoting a good deal of time over the last year and a half learning and focusing on issues related to civil rights and the civil rights struggle and movement. Maybe focusing a little bit on the Freedom Ride history, maybe you could talk a little bit about the origins of that and maybe what the sort of the political strategy was kind of behind it. What was driving that? What was, you mentioned core, what was kind of core's thinking about how this was going to sort of add value to what was already kind of a very active sort of civil rights movement, particularly across the South? Yeah, so that's a great question. What I would say is that when I went myself, I just went as a soldier, as an infantryman into this struggle. I didn't really understand the the background or the strategy. And it wasn't really until the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides, when PBS did a special on the Freedom Rides, which is still available. I think it's available for free online. It's a brilliant presentation of this. It's about an hour and a half or something of this strategy. And finally, I understood, oh, these guys really understood what they were doing. And there's there's several books on it now that I've finally read. But so the story is, like 1946, there was some Supreme Court decision that seemed to suggest that interstate commerce should not be constitutionally permitted to have segregation. So uh, nothing happened. This wasn't tested. But gradually, uh, this group, Congress and Racial Equality, was an offshoot of a, of a Christian pacifist group called Fellowship of Reconciliation. And that group decided with in consulting some lawyers and understanding this the law, decided to test it. And so they selected very carefully a group of black and white, Christian and Jew, men and women, old and young, to ride on public buses. One was a Greyhound bus, one was a Trailways bus. And they didn't fill the whole bus. They were just a component, maybe 10 or 20, I can't remember how many people on each bus from 
Washington, D.C. to the south. And they decided they would get off and try to eat and, and use the restrooms at these various bus stations. The group included James Farmer, who was a head of Corps, and included you know, a number of prominent, James Peck, who was a white pacifist, James Farmer was black, and it included John Lewis, who was later the congressman who died a year and a half ago. He was my uh, contemporary. We were born in the same year. I would say he, he was one of my life heroes. He was, just, he was a really great guy. He was 20 at that time, 21. And everything went okay until the buses reached South Carolina. Will, uh, John Lewis was beaten there, but they kept going until they got to Alabama. And there, one of the buses was attacked, firebombed. When the passengers tried to escape, they were, they were just beaten with bats and stuff like that, badly. They ended up hiding for protection in Montgomery, Alabama, in Reverend Martin Luther King's church. And surrounded by a mob outside, they were threatening to burn them, burn them down, you know. Reverend King had conversations with Robert Kennedy, told him he had, to, he had to send troops to protect them or they were going to all die and be incinerated, there's 3,000 people. And Kennedy did that because they, they didn't want to be embarrassed. They were, they were sort of in the struggle in the Cold War and they, didn't, they were saying Russia is a terrible place, but this didn't make us look good. So the Kennedys were very anxious not to have further damage. And Robert Kennedy tried actually to talk Martin Luther King out of further more buses. And he called actually Diane Nash, who was a 20-year-old student at, in Nashville. And she was a leader in the Southern Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is called SNCC for short, and said, no, please stop your buses. And she, as a 20-year-old, told Robert Kennedy, you know, basically to <laughs> get lost. And they were going. And so they sent another bus from Nashville. And at that point, CORE and SNCC called publicly for, and this was middle, late May 1961, for many buses to converge on Jackson, Mississippi, which was you know, the, the center basically of hell, and to fill the jails. They would, we would all get arrested and fill the jails until the government made a ruling against interstate segregation. And that's exactly what happened. So when this call came at Cornell, my friends, mostly older graduate students, called a meeting and said, well, who's going to go? And uh, it was just before exam time at Cornell. And so uh, I raised my hand and I said, yeah. So I went and told my professors, uh, please give me my grade that I have now. And I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going. So this was turned out to be extremely effective. The, the students kept coming, buses and buses kept coming. We drove from Cornell to New Orleans with New York state license plates. We got stopped and we had a, one of our guys who was, we put, we put in the driver's seat uh, when we crossed the Mississippi line, was from Texas. And so we got stopped and the state trooper said, well, where are you guys going to make trouble? And uh, he said, no, he drawled his Texas draw. and said, no, we're just going to meet my mama, you know, <laughs> and, in Galveston. So we were trained in New Orleans by CORE as a nonviolent thing. If we got stomped, we had to curl up in a ball and, and protect our head and our, our vital organs and not fight back. And we were we were housed in the Black community there. It was illegal. There were laws against miscegenation. Whites and Blacks were not allowed by law to sleep in the same house. 
we were taken care of by the uh, the core leadership, which was basically our age at that time. We proceeded to Jackson by train because the FBI at this time, although they were certainly not supportive of civil rights, they were under orders not to allow more people to be murdered because it made the Kennedys embarrassed. So the FBI informed Corps, they were in touch with Corps, and they said, look, if you send a bus, uh, there's a mob waiting on the Mississippi line, they're going to get beat up. So we went by train. Yeah, so finally, so, you know, this went on, and then in 1964, actually, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were, were killed in one of these incidents as, the, as these freedom rides continued. I was wondering, last year, I guess, was the 60th anniversary of the freedom rides, and I understand there was actually a reunion, or I think you mentioned it a moment ago. Are there any reflections from that event that stand out to you in terms of how people were sort of remembering it? And maybe at the end of the day, sort of looking back, and as that group was looking back, you know, how did they feel the Freedom Rides contributed in some way? What was the sort of important contribution of the Freedom Ride experience at the end of the day? Yeah, one thing I failed to mention is at the end, so we started in May, uh, this Freedom Rides continued through the summer, June, August, the arrested People spilled from the Jackson City Jail to the Hines County Jail to the Parchment State Prison. And by October or November, I don't remember exactly, there was a ruling from the Interstate Commerce Commission that outlawed segregation in public places serving interstate commerce. So this movement actually started in April and in six months less, it was a done deal. It was a very, very effective triumphant act, a series of acts. So that was that was very encouraging to the civil rights movement. People were beaten, but nobody lost their lives. And the 1964 summer was a voter registration period in, in Mississippi. And SNCC sent lots of black and white people, uh, young people to register people to vote. And this this was a much more challenging, threatening thing to these local communities. And that's when Goodman and Cheney and, and Schwerner were, were murdered because they were working in these communities and really threatening to change the, the whole way of life. Both Goodman and Schwerner, by the way, were what I would call red diaper babies like me. Uh, they were raised in basically uh, communist families. Cheney was a, a student, he was a black student in, who was raised in Mississippi. So in the voter registration period, it was much more threatening, much more dangerous. But it was also successful. I mean, by a year later, a few people had been killed. Medgar Evers was killed. But basically, the whole voting pattern in the South changed in about two years. You know, by 1965, 66, it was a done deal. And now, we're, of course, we're still fighting, <laughs> refighting the battle. But I don't think we're going back to, uh, you know, pre-Civil War conditions. Last year, the... Um, the 60th anniversary, uh, I guess, I'm not sure if there was, there was discussion of reunions, there was, there was chatter on the net, but I think COVID sort of got in the way. And also, most of the people are getting quite old. They're, you know, they're in their 80s now. And the 50th anniversary was 2011, and that was a big moment that people, many people came back to Jackson for a reunion. It was very well organized by some of the former Black students had become very successful businessmen. They owned McDonald's and Marriott's, and they did, had done very well. Uh, a guy named uh, Hank Thompson, for example, was an important organizer of this. 
So many people came back for that. And I did and brought my wife and I brought the grown daughter of one of my Cornell co-writers, Charles Haney, who, who was deceased by then. So some of the some of the white writers said, well, nothing has changed. Uh, you know, it's still bad. Or, you know, we have to keep fighting and so on, which is true. But I was impressed that many things had changed. For example, we we all assembled in a Marriott hotel, white and black. It was completely comfortable. The opening session was addressed by the, uh, the then governor, Haley Barber. He was a Republican governor of Mississippi, and he came out on the stage and said, I want to apologize to you for the way you were treated when you visited us in 1961. We, did, we were supposed to take care of you, and we failed to do that. So that was a pretty amazing statement. And then he invited us to breakfast the next day to walk down on his fancy lawn of the governor's mansion, fancy breakfast. And he again addressed this, and he said, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson was a, was a Supreme Court decision in 1890, roughly, that said, it's okay to have separate but equal facilities. He said, that's wrong. We can't do that. That's wrong. And then he addressed, there was a dedication of the uh, Greyhound bus terminal, uh, a new bus terminal. And he, he came there too. And he also made a, you know, a speech about that. And it was the fourth time. So I had the feeling that this was, my politics are not as his, but he did it so consistently and so apparently, frankly, without any euphemisms, that I, I was convinced that this guy really uh, was speaking, you know, his mind. So I also noticed that the police, many of the police were Black. They had, were wearing guns, which was certainly not true when I was there. The head of the police, the chief of police was a Black woman. The head of Parchment State Prison was a Black man. So Mississippi is still a very poor state, and so there are many poor people. But there's no way that you can say nothing had changed, you know, and that was, uh, to me, very heartening. And the great irony, of course, is now the sites of where Medgar Evers was shot and Emmett Till was lynched and Goodman, Schwerner and, and, and Cheney were, were lynched are now part of the Freedom Trail. And Fannie Lou Hamer, who was the Democratic leader of, for voter registration, they're all sites on a freedom trail, which is now, of course, in the United States, what, what do we do? We turned everything into a tourist attraction. So that's, it's now, <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the great lessons, though, from that period, from both from the freedom rides and also the voter registration is, in terms of trying to drive the social change of that era, you pick a particular sort of issue and you sort of go after it and change that one thing. Um, and then you go after another thing and change that and another thing and change that. And you realize that the sum total of all of those actions actually is what brings about the larger change. And sometimes I think we forget that and we want the big change all at once. And in many ways, it, it requires these sorts of particular political acts that are focused on what seems to be a relatively small issue at the time. I want to move on now to sort of the science side of your career and maybe try to help us kind of link up these two parts of your background. You spoke a bit about your time in um, in Cleveland and what you discovered sort of in the about hypertension in the uh, minority neighborhoods of Cleveland. You then began a career as a research scientist in, neuro, in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, focusing on retinal neural pathways. And it's really there, I think, that you began working with the biologist Joe Iyer on these issues of hypertension in the African-American community. Joe, I know Joe was very interested in these issues and, and kind of, I think, 
the two of you together kind of shared the, a passion for that. And it was really that work that got you to sort of think about this concept of al uh, allostasis. And perhaps you could talk a bit about this phase of your work and explain what the term allostasis means and why it's important as maybe, I guess I can characterize it as a paradigmatic break from the traditional homeostatic medical model. Sure. I began teaching uh, at the University of Pennsylvania in 1969. I lectured to medical students and I listened to the other lectures that they got. And all of the lectures would begin with essentially the same story that was about our body. Our body depends on various parameters being constant. For example, we need a certain level of blood glucose. We need a certain blood pressure. We need a certain temperature. And these are, these are, there are mechanisms within the body that hold all of these parameters constant. There are thousands, our, our salt concentration, our calcium concentration in our blood, all of these things are what we call regulated. And the idea is that when something deviates from the normal level, for example, suppose your blood sugar rises, then there are automatic mechanisms in the body to correct it. And it's sort of the model that the medical students are taught is like a thermostat. Temperature rises, cooling mechanism kicks in, temperature falls, warming mechanism, furnace turns on. It's not a complete lie. I mean, these things do exist in the body. Many, there are many, we call this negative feedback regulation. It's all about correcting errors. This was the foundation, it still is really, of medical education. But if you teach about it's all about the body, then you you don't you can't understand why people get hypertension. And it's, it was called essential hypertension. That is, we don't understand the reasons for it. And when I arrived there, it was, uh, well, we eat too much salt, and that causes our high blood pressure, or we do something else, and, and that's what causes it. Black people, oh, they have more hypertension. Well, that's because they have bad genes, and they don't handle the salt well, and so on. And it's really a denial of the social effects of stress, basically, and various forms of injustice on our health. So when I met Joe Iyer, he was interested in this. He was, he was, a, he was about a year ahead of me in studying this stuff. And we began, I began to look up and read about what he was doing, understanding. And we realized, you know, it's, it's the brain, of course. Uh, the brain is really running the body. I was an electron microscopist. I, I used the electron microscope to study nerve synapses in the brain. And I, and I read the literature and found there were nerve synapses on, the, on kidney cells and adrenal cells and pancreas cells and so on. And that what was happening was that the brain decides what's needed by the body. And then it pulls all the lever, levers and, and so on to deliver to the body just what it needs in just in time. So it predicts what's going to be needed. So homeostasis is purely about correcting errors. And the system that we are realizing, the brain is predicting what's needed and preventing errors. And this is a far more efficient system. We realized that the body couldn't actually, we couldn't survive if we just had error correction. And so that's the first job of the brain is to make these predictions. Well, so we began to publish this stuff, realize that hypertension is being caused by social tension. And now I, I, I had that hypothesis in Cleveland, but I didn't, have the, I didn't have the evidence. And now we really had a lot of evidence. And 
So we published some in 1977, another again in 1981, with all the documentation of, of this. And I would talk in medical, to medical students about it. Nobody was really interested. I've come to see that homeostasis is really a racist doctrine. It's telling people who are oppressed, no, it's not your mind, it's your, it's your body, and your body's a mess, and, and you know, that's the problem. So in 1988, we were invited to write a review about this evidence for a book on stress. And we wrote the article. And then at the end, toward the end, I said, you know, we, if we want to fight the idea of homeostasis, we need a, a counter term. And we need a term that says the body is stabilized by change, responsiveness. So I asked a friend uh, who was a professor of Greek what Greek term we could have. He said, well, allostasis, that is stability through change. So we adopted the term. Again, I went back to my studies on the retina and nothing much happened. But a, a very energetic uh, scientist at Rockefeller University, Bruce McEwen, liked this idea. He studied stress. He began to use the idea and publish papers about it. So he helped really put it on the map. And then gradually, I, over the years, would do a re review here, a review there. It went slowly. A lot of people were very angry at the idea. What do you mean? Homeostasis is a fine idea. We don't need anything new. This is nothing new. But by now, I've been keeping at it and giving talks and writing books. And um, the concept of homeostasis, which is adapt adaptation, that is responsiveness to need of the body, is a principle of neural design, actually. It's, it's principle 10 in a book that I wrote with Simon Laughlin about principles of brain design. And so eventually, I got to the point where I, I felt I needed to summarize my understanding of human evolution from the bottom up, rather than from the top down, from politics down. I wrote this book, What is Health? It came out two years ago. And uh, it's a place where I gathered together all of this evidence about human evolution. So at the heart of your argument about the evolution of the human design is that this homeostatic model we've relied upon is central to the medical healing process actually falls short really of explaining how our bodily system really operates. And in, as you've said, you've offered allostasis as, as an alternative. What would allostasis add or how would it improve our understanding of our health and how we might better manage our health? In other words, let's take the, let's accept the hypothesis for a moment and sort of think like, where does that take us? One of the things that emerged from my work with uh, Simon Laughlin and, and, and our book on brain design is that we operate, our brain operates on 20 watts of electricity. That is like a refrigerator light bulb. Artificial intelligence, a computer that really, you know, competes with us and beats us at chess and so on, requires 20 megawatts, megawatts, okay, like a power plant. Our brain can do this because it's efficient and everything in our body works, has evolved to be efficient, including our we have some energy producing turbines that convert glucose into energy. They will operate at 90% efficiency. And so each stage of human development, starting from 4 billion years ago from bacteria, were efficient. And then the next eukaryotic cells were efficient. And finally, we arrived. So everything has to operate efficiency. And allostasis is a method of prediction that makes it efficient. 
and it trades off. When we don't need something, it turns down. When we need something, it turns up. When we need more energy that our heart can pump out, oxygenated blood and energy, we turn down some of our organs. When we are stressed in physical activity, our kidney turns down, our stomach blood turns down, and we deliver the blood to our muscles. And the same thing in reverse. It's time to uh, clean up our blood, our kidney turns back on. So, and so these trade-offs are regulated by the brain. So now in terms of our own health, I think the problem is two things. One is that because we get all of our energy from supermarkets, <laughs> uh, we don't have to do anything. We just go there and it's all expected. We get what we expect and we don't have to move very far or do anything that our bodies, as part of an allostatic adjustment, turn down and fall apart. And when we find food without having to worry about or expect anything, a surprise, it's not satisfying. And so to be satisfied, uh, there's a neural system, reward system, that has become satisfied when it finds something that it didn't expect. And in a supermarket, everything is expected. So what, what's the surprise in a supermarket? More. When you go to a restaurant, what's the surprise? More richer. So we go from a Mac to a Big Mac to a Whopper. When we're cool, we, we turn the thermostat up. When we're, when we're too warm, we turn it down. There's very little surprise in, in modern life. And the satisfaction that we can't get from these little surprises, we turn to uh, chemicals that do give us brain release of the key chemical dopamine that makes us feel satisfied and relaxed. And those include uh, nicotine, opioids, amphetamines, cocaine, alcohol, which foods all evoke these huge rises in, in, in dopamine and make us feel okay for a while. But the problem is, once you get to these, accustomed to these huge rises, your brain adapts and you need more. And so this is what drives addiction. And if we get satisfaction from hard work, we become work addicts. If we get satisfaction from the internet, we continue that. So, so we're driven from having to attend to our physical needs to this sort of constant search for some sort of satisfaction that used to be from, now it's all vicarious. We used to play music. We used to tell each other stories. We used to uh, do our own art, and now we just click on the internet and we watch a YouTube and, and so on. It's fine, but it leads to a sort of social isolation and sort of a desperate sort of behavior. So the homeostatic model then, which is fundamentally a system for correcting rather than preventing errors in our core biochemistry, has led us to build a medical model around tinkering with homeostatic control mechanisms through pharmacology, if, I'm, if I think I have that right. In effect, right. We're then producing drugs to override these biological controls where we think they're flawed, but we are not necessarily solving the root health problem. Is that, if I got that right? And can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, you have it exactly right. The idea is from homeostasis is that if there's a problem in the body, there's a, some parameter that needs to be tweaked, and it's an individual person's problem that may be caused by a genetic variant or something else. And, uh, and we look for a drug to tweak that component, such as reducing blood pressure or blood glucose. So you give that drug, and uh, it has a little effect, but of course the brain compensates. If you reduce our salt water intake by tweaking the kidneys 
mechanism, the brain tweaks up the uh, compensates by raising the heart rate. If you block that with the drug, it constricts the blood vessels. And if you give multiple drugs, you can eventually sort of force the parameter that you're interested in into the right place. But then there are all kinds of other effects. So for example, if you give all of these drugs for blood pressure, you end up raising blood glucose and many of these people have type two diabetes, so you make that worse. So you end up trying to treat individual people with, with what I call polypharmacy. And what you're doing is you, you have a, a basically a, a sick individual who you're stabilizing sort of precariously by all of these drugs. And it's very expensive. It doesn't lead to people having uh, good health. So that, that's the story. In the midst of all the work that you've done, Peter, I, th I know you've read a lot of anthropological texts about traditional societies. And I, I'd be curious if you could comment on what you've learned from reading across these different disciplines that it's, it's kind of helped you flesh out this, this alternative framework and given some, you know, an, and provided other, I suppose you might say, evidence in support of your core arguments. What has anthropology sort of kind of helped you to sort of see? Sure. Well, I, I, when I arrived at Penn and began working with Joe Iyer, he, he pointed out to me the literature on how other peoples lived. And I would say I was, I was very surprised and interested in, but it's not just reading. I, I, I have gone, uh, starting in the late 70s, to visit simpler societies where people do hunt and gather and uh, live in, in traditional ways. And I've continued to go back to Central America over the years. Panama has a number of, it has a half a dozen different distinct uh, indigenous peoples, and I visited all of them, and, and some in, in Honduras and in Costa Rica, and uh, we've been to the Amazon. So uh, I have some personal familiarity now with, the, with these lives, and we live on a small farm, which is the work, the agricultural workers are uh, Nobe uh, indigenous people, and we visit them in their, their ancestral community, which is about two hours drive from here. So it's, it's reading, but it's also visit. Uh, I've also hiked across the, uh, the Isthmus of Panama twice, where you, you reach communities which are you know, two days walk from any market. So they, they are quite isolated. And what you see from reading or this personal contact is that people um, live cooperatively and they live by finding, you know, small, these daily small surprises. Their, their blood pressures are not only low, they don't rise with age. People in medical school, they teach you that your blood pressure rises with age. Well, not if you live in the Darien Embara community, or not if you live in the Nobe community on the Caribbean slope. Then your blood pressure is low. Your physical condition is high because you're out there walking and working and stuff like that. And you have your own art, you, you, you make baskets, you make uh, musical instruments, you sing, and uh, you travel to other communities to, uh, to have festivals and so on. And there's very little in life that's vicarious. Those people, they may raise coca leaves in, in Bolivia and in Colombia, and they sell them and they may chew them or they may take ayahuasca or stuff like that, but they're not addicted to cocaine because they don't need it, you know. So, so it's a very, very much healthier life in, in many ways. There are other ways in which it's hard, which then makes them very vulnerable to modern change as it arrives. It seems like the real contrast then between our sort of modern life and that of, say, maybe more traditional societies is this growth of hypertension. 
that's really kind of been a, a byproduct of our modern consumerist capitalist societies. As you kind of got deeper into this literature on hypertension and, and through your work in medicine, how bad and how widespread is the problem? In other words, how, how, and how does it manifest itself across different classes and racial groups, which is you know, tended to be kind of your particular concern? Sure. Well, hypertension is like the tip of the iceberg. Hypertension is very much driven also by obesity, and obesity also drives type 2 diabetes. These three features drive cardiovascular disease and, and stroke, uh, cerebrovascular and, and renal disease. So there's a whole complex of consequences, bad medical consequences, health consequences from this sort of life. These are also associated with addictions to uh, gambling, to work, to sex, to all of the drugs that I mentioned. And so if you take what are called these drugs of despair, suicide, alcoholism, drug poisonings, and you add to them all of these cerebral, uh, cardiovascular and metabolic diseases, it accounts for by far the largest cause of death. If you take this group, the next important cause of death is cancer. And this is four times greater than cancer. So I lump these all together. If you take the cancers that are caused by alcoholic liver disease and the cancers, the lung cancers that are caused by smoking, which are part of this complex, then this, these are fivefold more important than the next cause of death. These, this is what is really killing us in, in this country. And medical care, I mean, the billions, we now, we, we spend 20% of our gross domestic product on so-called health care, but it's not, it's not health care, it's, it's sick care, you know. In 1960, we spent 5%. Okay, so we have this huge fraction of our total economy that's devoted to treating people with these end-stage diseases that the care is, is pretty ineffective and it's very, very expensive. So if we would get change things so that people would actually be getting exercise, they would be telling each other stories rather than watching YouTubes, if they would be supporting each other, it would be a different place. If they had a vacation, 25% of American workers have no paid vacation. You lived in Boston for many years. You know what it's like to drive in Boston. People are, are you know, ready to shoot you and scream and, and so on. Well, if, if every Bostonian had a, a month vacation, it would be a different place. So you asked about the distribution of these health in our population. And the way it is now is that most the predominant causes of deaths of despair and all of these other type 2 diabetes and hypertension, it's moved from cities into rural areas. It's mostly in the communities where people have no education beyond high school. So they have very poor jobs. They don't have unions anymore because the unions have sort of died away. They're very vulnerable to, uh, to all kinds of capitalist exploitation. And, you know, it's hard not to notice that these are also the states that are voting for Republican candidates of the worst sort of the Trumpian variety. These are the people who are very angry. And what I think is the tragedy is that the liberal white democratic communities want to make changes. Biden wants to bring back the uh, build back better. And his program would do a lot to help this. But the, the people in these communities are so angry that they, uh, they're they not uh, supporting it. And I, I think we're really at an impasse now. I, the people who need the help 
are angry at the people who one would might give them the help. And, you know, what are we going to do? Well, it's interesting. So you started your work initially work, you know, observing what you were seeing in sort of poor neighborhoods and urban areas in black minority neighborhoods. But now sort of what we're seeing is this has become sort of more of a class sort of issue, maybe largely about inequality across races and, and ethnic groups and more about sort of social structure more generally. Maybe if we could just sort of jump into the sort of the, the implications for our health system and medicine as it's currently practiced in the U.S., what, what has to change within our sort of our larger medical system? I mean, I mean, there's lots of debate about the quality of healthcare in the United States and the way our sort of for-profit health system is put together, our market-based system. That's a whole other kind of, I suppose you might say, discussion in podcast. But what, you know, in terms of what you're kind of putting forward, what are sort of some things that you would probably point us toward as kind of a subject for more debate and discussion. I just published with Michael Platt an article in, in uh, JAMA Psychiatry, Journal of the American Medical Association of Psychiatry. It's about deaths of despair, which, you know, as we notice, is, is a huge medical crisis. The, the National Academy of Sciences published a, a big, huge report last spring saying our medical crisis is, is getting worse. Death rates are rising, not only for opioids, but for many, many other things. And our life expectancy is falling. It's been falling for about two decades. And the problem is that the National Academy says, well, what, well, what should we do? I mean, what do you mean a death of despair? What is that really? And suicide, is that really a death of despair? Well, I mean, of course it is. Uh, you know, so they focus their attention on things like more Narcan to treat overdoses, distributing needles, teaching resilience. I mean, if you teach somebody who's desperate resilience, you may, you know, it's not a bad idea. It's a skill that we all need, but it's not addressing the fact that they, they can't get a decent job. They have no childcare. They can't, they don't have a vacation. They can't pay for their education or their healthcare. So we looked after considering the U.S. crisis, we looked at Europe. And in fact, the National Academy report is all about a comparison between our rising death rates and the falling death rates in Western Europe, Japan, Canada, Australia. But it doesn't say, well, what are they doing? Well, we, we did. We said, well, what are they doing? Well, number one, they take some component of the public gross domestic product and they invest it from taxes in prenatal care, they give mothers uh, postnatal time off, paid. They have preschool, paid. They have good, uh, more equal elementary and public education. When it's time for young adults to move into the workforce, they pay for that post-secondary education where, where if for us, it's all on uh, individuals. And many of them have still have multiple generations raising the children. It's very hard to raise a child, as you know, just with the two. It used to be grandparents would used to help. Now it's just two, uh, a couple. And often now it's uh, 25% of children are now growing up in single parent households. This is extremely difficult to do because we're, we're two children are too demanding both for food and for emotional support. So all of these countries are tending to these basic human species-specific needs with shared cooperative programs. And that's basically what we need to do. I think there's a lot of that is in Biden's program, and that, that's what we need to get going. It's, 
I mean, there will be other problems, but we could turn down our death rates. We could turn down our suicides by adopting some of these very simple governmental support, community support. I mean, it's a bad word to say the government will take care of you, but this is not the government. This is our shared domestic product. And now it's being basically ripped off by Bezos and all of these other billionaires, and they're blowing it off in outer space. It's, it's an outrage. At the heart of, I think, your, real, your notion of health is really is the whole idea of care, caring for ourselves and one another as, as a highly talented and capable species. And I think one of your messages is that we've got to really build a more caring and I think probably cooperative society than we currently have. Whereas competition is great to some degree, but care and cooperation perhaps is maybe a better foundation for a healthy society. And I think probably one of the other notions I think you were kind of getting at in some of your earlier comments was that we, we probably also need to be creating more challenging and decent work for people if we're to overcome sort of boredom and rampant sort of despair that we're finding amongst certain classes within our societies. That's quite a challenge I think you're posing, and it might require actually the, the rethinking of our entire capitalist order to some degree and, and some rather significant changes that go way beyond sort of the health discussion. I know you've read Tim Jackson's book, Living Beyond Capitalism, and other such critiques. And what are you taking away from books like Tim Jackson's and, and others that are kind of trying to kind of rethink capitalism? And we're even finding some of the grand capitalists today kind of, you know, musing over whether the system we have is the one we, we need or the one that we can continue to live with. Be interested in your sort of thoughts on that. Sure. Well, I, I, I read Tim Jackson's book, and I try to keep up with some of these things. I, I agree with him. But I think it is key that what I come from is the human brain is this huge, incredible organ. And humans evolved at age 20, when humans in hunter-gatherer societies enter the adult life, they begin to learn how to hunt and how to gather. Their productivity is measured by anthropologists over many every continent. Their productivity improves from age 20, when you go out and first try to find something, to age 45. So there's a learning curve. It's a very long process to learn how to get your food, you know, and it's a, cha it's a challenging career. By 45, people are good at it and they, they decline slowly. And so after 60, they're still taking care of themselves and contributing to the community. Take people with that sort of brain with, who evolved for these challenging careers and have them flip a burger. They learn it in five minutes, have them scan a barcode. They learn it in, in minutes and that's no kind of life to accommodate such a brain. It's not just capitalism. I mean, this is true in China. It's true in socialist countries. I mean, you, you need what you just need to do is whatever you're doing, whatever your system of production is and so on, it has to take into account the nature, the biological nature of our species is that we need activities that are dignify the brain we have. And if it can't be done by capitalism, well, we need it. We need some other system, but that's that's the direction we need to go. And I think, in the end, uh, however you want to say it, think about it: is we need, at a personal level, to take from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. And if we could adopt that slogan and somehow use that as a guide for judging what sort of economic reforms we need, it would help everybody. You know, it's interesting, this whole concept of care, I think, has become, you know, very central to this discussion about 
our society and I mean, even to the discussion around the Build Back Better bill. And one of the sort of the architects of some of the thinking in that is, is Ai Jen Poo, the charismatic founder of the National Association of Domestic Workers. She argues that we should think of care the way we think of bridges. We can't get to work without a bridge and we can't, we cannot get to work without some sort of help and care in the household, which is kind of to some of you what you're talking about, about child care and elder care and so forth. And I think she's trying to make the point that it's legitimate, decent and meaningful work that you know contributes to a you know a healthy society. She goes on actually in talking about this and borrows a little bit from Gloria Steinem, goes on to make the argument that the only reason we don't treat care work as infrastructure is because we treat all women's labor as a natural resource like a forest and a river that has no value because it, it is infinite in supply, which I guess you know we'd have to sort of agree in itself as a core fallacy, but it sustains low wage or no wage work for women as acceptable and social economic behavior. We now have the Build Back Better bill, I think, as you mentioned several times, uh, stalled in Congress that would seem to have many of the kind of provisions for the caring economy that you espouse. So it's, I think, probably important for us all to keep an eye on that legislation and how, what it, how it might sort of contribute to the sorts of change that you're talking about. I wonder if you've had an opportunity, Peter, maybe as a final sort of set of reflections to present your some of your work to African-American communities since it had its origins in some ways in concerns about their community and their health. And what their reactions have been to, you know, your findings and so what you've you've been putting forward in in your latest book. Yeah, I completely agree with that statement about care, the caring issues and women's issues. Absolutely, we have to recognize the the need need for care, and we have to uh, we have to reward it in the way that it, it deserves. I have tried to. I've gone back to my hometown uh, last summer and spoke to uh, some people in the African American community there, re-meeting some of my old high school classmates and their brothers and sisters. I think I'm going to do that when I visit you in at the end of March. I've done several podcasts with uh, African American uh, podcasters. The thing is, when I went to Cornell, there were two African Americans in the class in the undergraduate group of 10,000. Now, uh, there's hundreds and hundreds. I don't know the exact number, but it's a big difference. So when I give a talk uh, at a university now, it's not just to white people, it's, it's to a very diverse audience. And when I say, look, it's your brain, and it's the fact that Black lives still don't matter that's causing your hypertension, I can see in, in the Zoom audience, people nodding their head and uh, sticking up their, you know, their thumbs. And so, yeah, I think the African-American community feels sort of empowered by what I have to say. I think, and I think the information that I, I have the authority to say, look, I, I know how this works and this is why you're, you're suffering these things. People pick it up and run with it. Great. Well, unfortunately, Peter, we're out of time. So I'd like to really thank you for this really great discussion. And I'm sure over the years you've been challenging many people, including our listeners today, to reevaluate how they think about health, wellness, and some of the larger issues about how we're organized as a society and a nation. It's been a great and timely conversation. Clearly, in the faces of challenge uh, like climate change and a nation in despair, we've got to, I think, really think boldly about solutions. And I think you've provided us with some uh, really challenging food for thought. So I want to just thank you for the conversation and uh, wish you much success in advancing this scientific vision about health and wellness in the future. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Sterling's work, you can find his book, What is Health, Allostasis, and the Evolution of Human Design at MIT Press or through Amazon.com. For more episodes of the Global Pathways podcast, 
visit pulte.md.edu backslash Global Pathways Podcast or stream and subscribe through your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Global Pathways Podcast. I'm Ray Oppenheiser, and I'll see you next time. Additional support for the Global Pathways Podcast with Ray Oppenheiser comes from the University of Notre Dame's Keele School of Global Affairs, home to the Pulte Institute and other global institutes, centers, and programs. As Notre Dame's first new college or school in nearly a century, the Keele School places development at the heart of global affairs. Learn more at nd.edu slash global affairs.